Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, should Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer retire? He's 82 and apparently healthy, but his retirement would give Biden a chance to nominate a younger person. He has promised a black woman who could be confirmed now while Democrats still control the Senate. Joan Walsh will comment. And coming up, we'll talk about the political transformation of Kirsten Sinema, the new senator from Arizona. She's one of the two most conservative Democrats in the Senate, but she started out to the left of the party. Aida Chavez, the nation's new Washington correspondent, will report. But first, if you want to stay on the cutting edge of the cultural conversation, you need to subscribe to the nation's newest newsletter, Books and the Arts. With this newsletter, you'll receive a curated selection of the nation's latest cultural criticism, along with a short essay exclusively for nation newsletter subscribers, written by the books and the arts editors themselves. Don't worry, we won't clog your inbox. The world of books, art, music, and film will be delivered to your inbox every two weeks. It's something worth looking forward to. Subscribe to our new thought-provoking and agenda-setting newsletter at thenation.com slash book newsletter. That's thenation.com slash book newsletter, all one word. Subscribe today. Kirsten Cinema became the first woman Arizona ever elected to the Senate in 2018. She's also the first Democrat to win a Senate seat in Arizona in 30 years and the first bisexual senator elected from anywhere. Since she was sworn in in 2019, she's made a name for herself by opposing the $15 minimum wage as part of Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. And now she says she opposes abolishing the filibuster. But she started out not on the right wing of the Democratic Party, but to the left as a Green Party activist. For that story, we turn to Aida Chavez, She's the nation's new D.C. correspondent. She was previously a congressional reporter at The Intercept, and she's written for The Hill and The Washington Post. We reached her today in our nation's capital. Aida Chavez, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start in 2002 when Kirsten Cinema was preparing to run for a seat in the Arizona State House of Representatives. What were her politics in 2002? In 2002, she actually published a letter in the Arizona Republic where she puts forth like a critique of capitalism, saying that capitalism brought us NAFTA, it brought us the World Bank. And as long as we have the system, um, like the dollar will be prioritized over working people here and working people abroad. And so, you know, it couldn't be more of a stark contrast to who she is today. And how did she do in that first race that she ran in 2002? Uh, well, she 
did really poorly. <laughs> um, she lost. Um, she came in last place. You know, next time she ran for office, she ran as a Democrat um, and did better. And, you know, once she was in the state legislature, um, she was actually considered one of the more progressive, if not like the most progressive member of the state legislature. And in between was the start of the Iraq war, which was a big issue for her. Yeah, a lot of her activism um, was specifically anti-war activism. She organized like over a dozen uh, rallies and her biggest one in Phoenix attracted thousands of people. If you look at the flyers um, that she was distributing at the time for uh, the coalition of groups that were putting together these rallies, they're pretty explicitly against um, Bush's like imperialist fascist war is what they call it. When she went to the Arizona State Legislature, as you said, as a Democrat in 2004, and she was first elected to Congress in 2012 to represent parts of Phoenix and Tempe. Uh, And then in 2018 was when she ran for the Senate against Martha McSally. Remind us what that race was like. Yeah, so I think at all these different uh, points in her career, uh, she began shifting right. Uh, She did shift to the right um, throughout her time in the legislature. She wasn't as bold as she was uh, when she entered. When she is elected to Congress um, as a member of the House, she joins the Blue Dog Coalition. Um, That is a very uh, pro-corporate faction of the Democratic Party. Um, They caucus together, work as a bloc. But when she ran for the Senate, I think, is when you see a more drastic shift to the right in her in her campaign ads. Uh, she would kind of um, tout um, her hawkishness and how she, you know, would support more military spending than her Republican opponent, Martha McSally. And uh, the Republicans used her left wing past against her in that race. Yeah, they they tried to like smear her as some extreme like left wing activists. Um, at one point, Martha McSally accused her of treason. Um, they called her like a, a Prada socialist. They, they circulated pictures of her like wearing a pink tutu from back um, in her anti-war days. That was really the messaging that they stuck to. And I think it explains in part why it didn't work. It just it didn't resonate with voters because she is very clearly not a two left-wing person. Not a Prada socialist. The thing that sort of brought her prominence in our world was when she announced that she opposed including the $15 minimum wage in the COVID relief bill. Joe Manchin also joined her in this position. Her argument was that it wasn't COVID relief. Fair enough. So then the question is, well, what would you support for a federal minimum wage? She tweeted the day that she announced her opposition and there was to the $15 minimum wage that was coming before the Senate. She tweeted what her argument was. I want to read this tweet and see if you can figure out what she actually supports. She says, I know the difference better wages can make which is why I helped lead Arizona's effort to pass an indexed minimum wage in 2006 and why I strongly supported the voter-approved state minimum wage increase in 2016. Then she says, no person who works full-time should live in poverty. Okay. Then she says, the Senate should hold an open debate and amendment process on raising the minimum wage separate from the COVID-focused 
reconciliation bill, I will keep working with colleagues in both parties to ensure Americans can access good-paying jobs. Did she say there what minimum wage she would vote for? Uh, no. I mean, I found that pretty incoherent. She she uses the excuse of, you know, procedure. Um, but I think anywhere you look, you find that the state of Arizona overwhelmingly supports an increase in the minimum wage. And Joe Manchin has said he would support $11. And then there's this question of, well, when, if you did $11 immediately, would you support $12 in two years and $15 in four years, which is actually... Uh, what B Bernie Sanders' original proposal was to have a step increase. I don't think she's ever said she would support that kind of bill either, has she? Uh, not that I know of. I know there's been a lot of activism among progressives in Arizona, especially around her opposition to the federal minimum wage bill. What can you tell us about that? And what has she said in response to her progressive critics? Well, you know, this really angered uh, progressives and even a lot of more mainstream liberals in Arizona, um, not only because um, it's a very uh, popular measure, but because um, she not only broke with the party, she broke with her own colleague, Senator Mark Kelly um, voted for it. And so, you know, that's kind of proof that even when representing a state like Arizona, like there's still room, you know, to support things that the party does. And so progressives and organizations, you know, they've been talking about someone needs to primary her. Um, they've been having protests um, in her home state. They've been going after her with ads even. Um, there have been like a couple of um, more like progressive PACs launching radio ads. And so I think I think this is going to be a thing that people don't forget and it's going to come back to bite her. And we have to talk about filibuster reform. Um, she has said she opposes abolishing the filibuster. There's still a lot of room there for varieties of abolishing the filibuster for a single bill or for a single issue or a stepped reduction in the supermajority required to end a uh, debate. The reason the filibuster reform is so important is to pass the voting rights bill, SB1, which was introduced in, in, in the Senate. Arizona is one of those states where a series of bills have introduced in the state legislature to dramatically restrict access to the ballot. Uh, the proposals in Arizona include removing 200,000 voters from the voter list of people who were automatically sent mail-in ballots because they did not vote by mail in two prior elections. They would require that mail-in ballots be postmarked the Thursday before the election in order to be counted. Uh, there's very strict ID requirements. So it's a big campaign to undermine mail-in voting, which 80% of Arizonans used in the last election. All of these would be blocked if this Congress passed SB1. And Kirsten Cinema is a co-sponsor of SB1, but this bill won't pass without filibuster reform. So how do you understand her opposition to reforming the filibuster? Her own political future would seem to depend on this. It does. And she won't be up for re-election um, right up next. But, you know, Mark Kelly is. And, and both of them uh, won uh, by, you know, smaller margins. And so it, it's really both 
in their interest to, to do whatever they can to help, you know, get rid of the filibuster so they can pass this. And it's ironic because even as a member of the state legislature, she fought pretty vigorously attempts from the other party um, to impose like many of these similar restrictions on voting and attempts at voter suppression. And it turns out it's not just the minimum wage and filibuster reform where she has taken these extreme positions. I learned from your piece at thenation.com that Kirsten Sinema has voted for Trump's positions about half the time she's been in the Senate. That is shocking. Yeah. Throughout her career, you see her citing with Republicans very often um, on issues surrounding immigration. So, you know, more recently, she voted to try to block uh, undocumented immigrants from receiving stimulus checks. That was, you know, a symbolic measure. Um, it wasn't something like, oh, she voted for it, now it's going to happen. But, you know, uh, considering that Latinos and progressives fought really hard to, you know, get her elected in the first place, um, they take it as a direct betrayal. Let's talk about Arizona politics for a minute. Her 2018 campaign targeted moderate Republican voters and suburban women alienated by Trump. Some people would say that was smart politics in Arizona in 2018. Well, I'd say, you know, a combination of these uh, long lasting demographic changes um, the state is increasingly brown and black. It, it's very young. The Latino population uh, skews young. Um, and so you have these more you know, progressive, younger voters combined with decades of organizing uh, around immigration issues that, that kind of um, awaken a whole new generation. Um, those things are simply not uh, sustainable with the kind of campaigning and the kind of politics uh, that mainstream Democrats like cinema, like Kelly, um, are pushing in the state. Even the media still tends to repeat uh, the narrative that, you know, Arizona is a very right wing state. And so the only way to win is by appealing to the center. And so I think, uh, you know, increasingly as time goes on, uh, we're going to see kind of like the contradictions between like this growing base and what the establishment wants to keep doing. For more on the contradictions in Arizona politics, read Aida Chavez's piece, How Kirsten Cinema Sold Out at TheNation.com. Aida Chavez, the new D.C. correspondent for The Nation. Thank you, Aida. Thank you. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is 82 years old. Many liberals are calling on him to retire so that Joe Biden can get a younger successor confirmed by this Senate before the 2022 elections when Democrats may lose control of the next Senate. But should Breyer retire? He seems perfectly healthy and competent. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's the nation's national affairs correspondent and the producer of The Sit-In, the documentary on Peacock TV about the week in 1968 when Harry Belafonte hosted The Tonight Show. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Great to be here. 
Well, back in 2013, when after Obama was re-elected, some of our friends called on Ruth Bader Ginsburg to retire. She refused, and you defended her decision. What was your thinking at that point? My thinking was, you know, women are are often starting their careers later in life. Uh, wasn't so much true for Justice Ginsburg, but in general. And she was just the most liberal justice I could imagine. I mean, I think Sonia Sotomayor has come along and, and taken that spot. But at the time, Justice Ginsburg was saying, you know, Obama will never appoint anybody like me. She was an ACLU attorney, you know, clearly pro-choice, just held views that could, you know, no longer be confirmed. And and, and I just thought she was great. You know, I don't even think that the notorious RBG stuff had totally started at that point. Finally, like her, I thought, well, she will retire when President Hillary Clinton is elected. But that didn't happen. And so, you know, we saw we saw what happened. We've we've seen what happened with the refusal to let President Obama appoint Merrick Garland to replace Antonin Scalia. We've seen what happened once Trump got elected and pushing through horrific judges. And so I am just afraid right now that we are in a situation where we've got about a year to confirm a Democratic appointee at, at most. Well, if Breyer resigned, Biden has promised to appoint a black woman but there aren't very many black women on the federal bench, especially at the appeals court level, which is where I understand 11 of the last 12 Supreme Court nominees have come. There are five black women there. All of them will be 68 or older this year. Who's on the list? There are a variety of great black women being mentioned. Uh, J. Michelle Childs uh, of South Carolina is a, is a favorite of Jim Clyburn, who often gets his way. Leslie Abrams Wagner, Stacey Abrams' sister, but she's got much more going for her than that. She's brilliant in her own right, is another person who's mentioned. I've always pushed for Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund because, you know, our first black justice was Thurgood Marshall, who also came from that storied, glorious place. Let me just say, I'm for Sherilyn Eiffel, too. She's Fantastic. She's She's brilliant. We've seen her on MSNBC with Rachel Maddow a few times and she's the best. Yeah, she really is. And so I don't I don't feel that the next the next justice, him or her, whatever race has to come from the appeals court. But they, they, they traditionally have. And it's really a shame and kind of shocking that there's so few women in that black women in that pipeline. The news today we're speaking on Tuesday is that Biden has nominated 11 people for seats on the federal appellate bench and federal district courts. This is the earliest any new president has nominated people for the courts. Tell us about the 11 people he has nominated. Judge Katenji Brown Jackson of the D.C. Circuit, she's been she's been on the short list uh, because she's already great. Elevating her is going to have a lot of impact. I mean, it really it, it puts her on a shorter list, to be honest. I mean, once she's confirmed and she will be confirmed, uh, it's just easier to appoint people once they've been confirmed as part of it. He's nominated three black women nominated one of the first Muslim women. I mean, it's it's the most diverse roster. And the fact that there are 11, I mean, I saw today in the number of judge appointment, judicial appointments that 
prior presidents have done have been in the single digits and often the single digit is zero. So, you know, it's it's really another one of those things I you know, we've talked about this before. Joe Biden was not my pick, but he has come out of the gate very energetically and with a lot of ideas that are, show that he's learned from, you know, the problems of his predecessor, Barack Obama. And there's one other notable name that is of a nominee for the Seventh Circuit, which is currently all white judges. Biden on Tuesday nominated Candace Jackson Akiwumi, somebody I've never heard of, but she was a federal public defender in Chicago for a decade. This is not the typical Harvard Law corporate defender, white man judge that that has been getting on into the courts for decades. No, and that's also where we got they got uh, Amy Coney Barrett. That's also kind of fascinating. I mean, you know, Trump was an amoral moron, but he was controlled very well by the powers that be. And, you know, in addition to tax cuts, he really processed whatever Mitch brought him. He appointed them. Mitch got them through largely because he couldn't do that or he couldn't work with that efficiency until Harry Reid moved some things around. Barack Obama didn't do that. Uh, And so we really wound up leaving Donald Trump a lot of seats to fill. And Joe Biden has learned that lesson. So, you know, to the extent that Trump left a few unfilled, they're being filled. And I think that that will be a, a huge priority of the administration going forward. So we're talking about Biden's promise to nominate a black woman for the next Supreme Court opening. But some people are saying, shouldn't Merrick Garland get the nomination? He was robbed of a Supreme Court seat by Mitch McConnell. It's sad, but it doesn't work that way. I'm thrilled that he's going to be, or he is, he got confirmed, finally. He's, He's our attorney general. I admire him. I have nothing against him. But I never thought that he should have been Obama's pick in the first place. We didn't need another white man on the Supreme Court. He was already older than, you know, I mean, Amy Coney Barrett is 49 years old. That's what they're looking for. That's what they've been looking for. They've been appointing people in their 40s, 49 through 50. We have to learn from that, too. So the idea that Merrick Garland is in his 60s, which I am, too. I don't like discriminating against people in their 60s for any reason. But... You've got we've got to start playing hardball. And and that's part of why, you know, I came down reluctantly on the side of I hope Justice Breyer does resign. Speaking of older people stepping down, Diane Feinstein is the oldest senator right now, 87. She's on she's still on the Senate Judiciary Committee, although she's no longer the chair. She would be replaced by a Democrat because she's from California. Pat Leahy of Vermont is 86. You know, he's a wonderful guy, but. 86 is pretty old. Yes. I mean, Leahy, you know, Vermont has nominally a Republican governor. And, uh, you know, there are uh, there are laws in place where maybe, you know, they would have to appoint a Democrat. But but still, you know, they if they don't step down, they've really got to pledge not to run again. I mean, we've got six uh, Democratic senators in office right now who, not to be morbid, but God forbid, if they were to die in office, would be replaced by Republican governors. Uh, And so, you know, part of the calculus with uh, uh, surrounding the Supreme Court justices is that 
they they can die. Uh, but with the Democrats having basically a dead even uh, a majority that only depends on Kamala Harris, if we lose any of them, we lose everything. And, you know, to me right now, the Supreme Court just halting the bleeding, you know, it's six, three, God forbid, it's seven, two, we lose the country it is the top priority. Uh, and so I really think that all the people, at least over 80 and, you know, <laughs> perhaps in their late 70s, have to be thinking about that. And so it's morbid. I, again, it's like not what I like to go around thinking about, but it, it's it's a crisis. Well, just to stick with morbid for another minute, when you have a 50-50 Senate, you worry about every single uh, one of your people. We have lost Democratic senators before they got to their 80s. Paul Wellstone was killed in a plane crash when he was 58, and a Republican won the, the election to replace him. Eventually, that seat was occupied by Al Franken, but then he was driven from office by Democrats, unfairly in the view of many of us. So things happen even to your younger incumbents that you'd never expected. Well, that is true. That is part of life. But there are some things that are more likely. I hate this whole topic, but, you know, <laughs> people in their 80s and late 70s are more likely to have something happen to them. And so, I hope they don't. I hope they live very happily into their 90s or, you know, beyond 100 with their grandchildren and great grandchildren beside them. But they don't really necessarily have to be in the United States Senate or on the Supreme Court to have a fulfilling life. So we conclude that Justice Stephen Breyer should retire. My last question is, how soon should he do this? Pretty soon, pretty soon. I mean, partly because of the morbid things we were just discussing, but also because, you know, Republicans will find a way to postpone it, whatever happens. Uh, and, you know, the 2022 midterms are really coming up fast. Joan Walsh wrote about why Breyer should retire for thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.